Well, hello again, everyone. Tony Payne here. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. It's another beautiful day here in Sydney, and we're only a few days away, for us at least, for our first Sunday back at physical church for some months, and everyone's very much looking forward to that. This last Sunday at church, we were still online, still listening to sermons on Zoom and YouTube and so on. And as we read Romans 9 and had Romans 9 preached to us this last week, it reminded me of an old axiom of Bible reading. I can't remember who first taught it to me, but I've been forever grateful. It basically says that when you come across a knotty passage in Scripture, don't glide past it, untie it. Because a knotty or a confusing or a confounding passage, it's a real opportunity to learn. Sometimes it's an opportunity to beat back the veil of ignorance that we have in our hearts just to learn something new about the Bible or about the passage, such as when we're reading, say, somewhere like Hebrews 6 and the obscure figure of Melchizedek suddenly looms out of the mist and we wonder, who on earth is he and what's he got to do with the price of fish? Learning who Melchizedek is and delving into that, it just grows our knowledge. But sometimes we come across Bible verses that are knotty and confounding not because they're particularly obscure or hard to nut out, but because they're objectionable. I suppose you could say they tie us in knots. They cut across our assumptions or expectations about God or what he is like or who we are and what we are like. These knotty passages expose our deepest sort of baseline attitudes and beliefs and often shine a light on where those things have gone profoundly astray. And that's what it was like reading Romans 9 and hearing it preached this last Sunday. Because in Romans 9, as Paul talks about how God will have mercy on some people and not on others, and that it's entirely up to him, he then asks the obvious rhetorical question in the passage. He says, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, Fair enough question, you might say. If God calls the shots, if he's totally in charge, then why are we to blame for finding ourselves on his bad side? And then comes these sentences. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use. That's Romans 9, verses 19 to 20. Now, perhaps there are more knotty and objectionable verses in the Bible than these ones, but surely not by much. Something deep within me, deep within my Western soul, rages against these verses. I really don't like the idea of me being considered as a lump of clay as an object in the hands of a God who can do with me what he wants. To a modern Westerner like me, to people like us, this just feels dehumanising and oppressive. I mean, whatever happened to human dignity? Surely this is the poisonous spirit of oppressive primitive religion at its worst. As Shakespeare says, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. The preacher on Sunday helpfully pointed this out, that these verses in Romans 9 are difficult for us. 
because we're profoundly convinced that we are at the centre of the universe, not God. We find it very difficult to cope with the idea that we might be bit players in someone else's drama, rather than the star of our own story. Now this, of course, is as old as Adam and Eve and the rebellion that they engaged in, but it's a particularly virulent problem for modern Western people like us and comes in a particular form for us. It's part of what we used to call our worldview, I guess, in the 70s and 80s, that was the word, which some clever people these days call our social imaginary, or which you might want to call, in the classical words of that philosophical treatise, The Castle, our vibe. It's the complex, often unstated web of beliefs and assumptions about ourselves and the world. The kind of matrix of meaning that our culture constantly reinforces and transmits to us, and we absorb it and come to accept it, and we live our lives on it. We operate under this vibe day by day. And for nearly three centuries, our Western culture has been steadily constructing a vibe in which God is excluded and man is the centre and measure of all things. And we don't even notice or articulate this anymore particularly. We just live as if it's the case, as if it's normal. The debates we have with each other on any issue, the political or social or ethical debates our society has, they all proceed on this basis. God is not a factor at all in those debates. The stories we tell each other in movies or TV shows or even in books, if you still read books, these stories also assume and reinforce this vibe constantly. I mean, it's impossible to imagine a Hollywood movie in which God is the potter and we are the clay. Unless, of course, we are the plucky, heroic figures of clay who come to life, follow our hearts, destroy the evil, oppressive potter and go on to fulfil all our dreams. And it occurred to me again on Sunday as we listened to Romans 9 and thought about it together just how important the rejection of God as creator is to our vibe, to our worldview, to our whole way of thinking and acting as modern Western people. The sovereignty of God over us is the sovereignty of a potter over his clay, of a creator over his creation. And to assert ourselves as the centre of all things, to exclude him as the sovereign ruling God, we must reject his claim over us as the potter. And of course, this is precisely what we've done as a culture. It started several hundred years ago with a kind of polite rejection that was called deism, in which we decided that, well, perhaps God has made us once upon a time, but he has since lost interest and is no longer really involved, nor does he care very much what we do. He's a distant, uninvolved creator. He's not a factor anymore, certainly, and he's certainly not knowable in any reliable sense. If we're going to figure out how to be and how to live, we have to do so on our own terms, starting from scratch, using the resources we have. And this was essentially the program of the Enlightenment, to kind of push God to one side in a deistic kind of way, and then try and construct a worldview or a vibe or a philosophy, or a morality for that matter, from the ground up, in which we could understand ethics and morality and the world and ourselves without reference to some external divine authority or source of knowledge. 
It was a program that in most respects assumed that the Christian morality and worldview of the time was basically correct, but that we should be able to demonstrate and explore and explain it without reference to God. We should be able to figure this out for ourselves. And the sidelining of God as creator was a critical aspect of this. And as time moved on, of course, that sidelining of God as creator became a little bit more violent. In fact, it went into overdrive in the late 19th century with the rise of Darwinism, particularly in the way that Darwinism was ideologically spun and argued by Thomas Huxley and others like him. Huxley, unlike Darwin, I think, was a militant atheist, and he wanted to deny the claim of any God, any supreme God over our lives. And he saw, perhaps with a clarity that maybe Darwin didn't, that if we could dispense with God as creator altogether, we could dispense with any connection or claim that God had over us and over our world. His supremacy, his authority would evaporate. And this is largely what has happened in the last 150 years. And the consequences have been cataclysmic. And many people have traced these consequences. I'm currently reading Carl Truman's book, for example, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in that book, Truman essentially tells the story of how in our current Western cultural vibe or social imaginary, we've come to think of ourselves as psychological self-creators. We're lumps of clay who've become convinced that our inner feelings and thoughts and instincts really determine what reality is. They determine who we really are and the reality of the world in which we live and interact. So that if we think and really feel that we are a woman, even though biologically we're a man, then so much the worse for biology. I really am a woman, a woman trapped in a man's body. In many respects, Truman's book is an attempt to explain how that sentence, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, has come to make sense and seem realistic and true for many modern people. In fact, of course, in our culture increasingly, the whole category of woman is now problematic and potentially offensive. We now have birthing persons. And the same is true for morality, and other authors have traced this trajectory, that if there is no creator, then there is no objective moral order to the world. Morality and ethics, if they really exist, emanate outwards from us as human subjects. They are something that we impose upon the world, not that we discover in the world. And so we value certain things. We come to feel that certain things are right or wrong for whatever reason. And that's about it. Morality becomes a personal framework that we come up with for our own purposes, or perhaps some would theorize that evolution has thrown up for various advantageous reasons. But it has no objective referent out there in the world. There's no moral order that we're attempting to understand and describe and relate to. It's all personally created, not created by God, which sounds great if you want to do exactly what you want to do. But of course, it's a recipe for moral chaos and absurdity. We can't even talk to each other properly anymore about moral issues as a culture because there is nothing objective to talk about. There's nothing beyond ourselves and our feelings and our assertions to talk about. 
and ethicists like Alastair McIntyre and Oliver O'Donovan and others have very sharply pointed this out. Without some kind of objective moral order outside of ourselves that we might talk about and discuss and debate together, coherent moral discussion really becomes impossible because all we end up doing is asserting our own values to one another. Whether they are expressed as rights that we pluck from somewhere and assert that we have this right, or whether they are simply our sentiments, our moral sentiments that we personally hold. But that leaves no basis for agreement or discussion. Just lots of different individuals asserting their psychologically derived moral values. Once we exclude the idea that reality is created and formed and ordered in all its aspects by the true and living God, we descend into all kinds of confusion and perversity. Or, in the words of another ancient cultural critic, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You might recognise that from Romans chapter 1. This is why the doctrine of creation is so foundational to the gospel itself, and presumably why it keeps cropping up in the New Testament when the gospel is presented or expounded. And I'm thinking of places like Acts 14 and 17, and in Romans itself, in Romans 1 to 8. Without creation, sin really doesn't make much sense, nor does judgment, nor therefore does the atoning work of Christ and his bodily resurrection as the God-man who rules all of creation. If we dig down into the foundations, the theological foundations of the gospel and of the whole Bible, we find God as the mighty sovereign creator of all things. And the constant rejection of this idea by the vibe of our culture gives us all sorts of problems. It means that we struggle to explain why we have such a different moral viewpoint on a whole number of issues. Because we believe, for example, that God made men and women and human sexuality in a certain way, and that this is an objective aspect of the order of our world for us to come to terms with. And there are many other examples besides. It also means that we struggle to explain why God has a claim over our lives, and why rejecting and rebelling against him is not only so wrong, but also so damaging to us and to our world. Among Christians, in the various debates that we've had over the years about creation and creationism and theistic evolution and so on, this key point has sometimes been lost. Whatever differences we may have, we must be creationists. The exact mechanism and time frame within which God created all things is something we can debate and something that people of good biblical faith do have different views on. And so you can be a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist or a God-used-some-evolutionary-mechanisms-perhaps creationist or, like me, and not completely sure how creationist. We may differ on the adjectives at the front, but we can't differ on the noun. We have to be creationists because God is the potter and we are the clay. This is a crucial truth to affirm and to fight for and to proclaim to one another and to the world. We need to keep doing this until Romans 9 is not a difficult passage for us to read and to preach to our world. Well, I thought it was rather disciplined of me not to 
mention two ways to live once during that post about creation and the gospel, especially given that the new edition is due out any day now. But I guess I've ruined that now by mentioning it here. Anyway, if you want to find out more about the new two ways to live, there's some info at the Matthias Media website about it. If you go to matthiasmedia.com.au, there's a banner there that you can click on for information about the new edition and exactly when it's coming out, which I think is any time, God willing. Well, that's just about it for this week on The Painful Truth. Once again, thanks for being here. And as always, I'm interested in your thoughts and reactions to my thoughts and reactions. Do you think that the doctrine of creation is something that we maybe miss out and don't dig into sufficiently in our teaching of one another and in our evangelism? Interested in your thoughts on that? Uh, you can get in touch by sending me an email to tonyjpain at me.com or you can go across to the website to thepainfultruth.com and just leave a comment there as well. And thanks so much to everyone who did send in some comments after last week's post about the new Two Ways to Live booklet. I really appreciated your encouragement on that and some of your feedback. Well, that's just about it for The Painful Truth this week, I think. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.